psalm of the songs of Korah to the choirmaster, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a masculine Henman the Ezraite. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slave that slain the lion and raved, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your ways. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. The word of the Lord. Well, I really appreciate, first of all, I want to give a shout out and a thanks to you all as a church. If you'll remember, during the Christmas season, uh, the church gave uh, my wife and I a little bit of money for our family to go take a trip. And so we decided to go take a trip to New York City. Uh, the country mouse visits the city mouse in New York. And we actually stayed in Manhattan. We kind of piled into this little place in Manhattan. And uh, New York City is something else, let me tell you. It's a whole different ballgame. There's energy coming out of that. You know, and we got to as a kid, we went to see, you know, Times Square and, and the Grand Central Station, and it was just fantastic. You know, one of the things I love about New York was, you know, you've seen it on a big city, you know, but there'd be, there'd be these guys on the side of the, of, of the street, you know, and they'd have their saxophone out, and they'd have their little thing out, and they'd be playing music, and you'd walk up to these guys, and there was such wonderful music, you know, it was like the blues music. And I thought to myself, well, wouldn't it be great, you know, if this pastor gig doesn't work out, maybe I could also be on the side and wrote in New York playing some blues. And so I, I did some research in how to sing the blues. And I found the, the, uh, uh, the, media, the text, the main text by Lane Mango Washington on how to sing the blues. Okay, and he says, most blues begin with woke up in the morning. I got a good woman is a bad way to begin the blues. Unless you stick something nasty in the next line. I've got a good woman with the meanest face in town. Okay? And then the blues is simple. After you get the first line right, you repeat it and find something that rhymes. Sort of. Got a good woman with the meanest face in town. Got teeth like Margaret Thatcher and weighed 500 pounds. That'll sell, you tell you. So the, the blues aren't about choice. They're about the fact that you're stuck in a ditch. You're stuck in a ditch and there's no way out. Blues cars can be Chevys and Cadillacs and broken down trucks, but blues don't travel in Volvos, BMWs, or sport utility vehicles. 
You can't use a greyhound buck, bus, bus, of course. Teenagers can't sing the blues. They ain't fixing to die yet. Adults sing the blues. And in the blues, adulthood means old enough to get the electric chair if you shoot a man in Memphis. Good places for the blues. A highway, a jailhouse, an empty bed, or the bottom of a whiskey glass. Bad places, ashrams, gallery openings, Ivy League institutions, or golf courses. <laughs> Cannot sing the blues on a golf course. Do you have the right to sing the blues? Yes, if you're older than dirt, you're blind, you shot a man in Memphis, or you can't be satisfied. No, if you have all of your teeth, you were once blind, but now you can see, the man in Memphis lived, or you have a retirement plan. Blues is not a matter of color, it's a matter of bad luck. Tiger Woods cannot sing the blues. Gary Coleman could sing the blues. Willie Nelson has for years. And this is the final, I think this is very important. Acceptable blues beverages are wine, whiskey or bourbon, muddy water or black coffee. The following are not blues beverages. Mixed drinks, sparkling water, kosher wine, or Snapple. No Snapple. So I could, oh, some blues names for men. Joe, Willie, Little Willie, Big Willie, Slick Willie. <laughs> some blues names for women. Sadie, Big Mama, Bessie, and Fat River Dumpling. <laughs> so if you go armed with that information, you too will know how to sing the blues. You know, if you do a little bit of research and history on the blues, where did it come from? Well, many of you know the, from the Mississippi Delta that this music came and they were actually the songs of slaves. Either in the Caribbean plantations or the American plantations, they would sing their sorrows. They were trapped in the ditch and there was no way getting out. The word, the blues, we're not exactly sure where it came from. It might have been from the indigo plant that was on the uh, plantation that they were used in Africa for various means of when you would bury someone, anointing them with indigo. But it means to be trapped and sorrowful. And as funny as we can talk about the blues, the truth of the matter is sorrow is a reality of life. We all experience it in one way or another. Whether it's a breakup with a spouse, or a close friend, a betrayal by someone, a sickness that comes along, a loneliness that we do experience in the dark of the night. We're all familiar sooner or later, particularly the older we get, with the blues. And so this man in this passage is singing the blues. Think about it, this is a song. It's a song written by a guy. Indeed, the guy who wrote it, his name was Heman. He was the grandson of Samuel, and he was actually the one appointed to clash the cymbals when there was music of praise in the temple. And yet he writes this song, and it's all about sorrow. Even those preoccupied with praise can understand sorrow. And so this man who's singing the blues feels abandoned and betrayed by everyone around him as we have from time to time. And it causes us to question our faith, just like he is. Is there something wrong with me? If I have the answer or everything, I know who God is. Isn't everything supposed to be happy and cheery and it really doesn't matter what's going on in my life? It's, it's a sin to be down because I know how everything is going to end up. When sorrow comes in our life, it causes us to question our faith. But it also causes us to question God. 
The God, God, the picture I have of you and the reality of my circumstances are not jiving with one another. Something is wrong here. And I'm having difficulty believing that you are the God who you say you are when what I see in my life is happening to me. So if we're all familiar with sorrow and it all comes upon our lives, how do we interpret it? How do we interpret sorrow in this life? Simply this. Sorrow is a part of this life. And it's a part of our faith. It's not a question of whether we're going to have sorrow or not, but rather how we handle sorrow. Because sorrow is not bigger than God. So we must accept sorrow as a part of our salvation, not as an exception to it. Sorrow is part of the painful process that God uses by transforming us and this world from brokenness into beauty. It is fully part and parcel and full of God's plan. And therefore, when sorrow comes along, we must be able to do these three things. Number one, we must be able to expect sorrow. We have to be able to expect sorrow and prepare for it. For when it comes, it doesn't throw us off track. Number two, we must not only expect sorrow, but we must accept it. Understanding that it's part of the process that God is using to transform us. But number three, maybe the hardest of all, we must not only expect sorrow and accept sorrow, but embrace sorrow. For God is using sorrow not only to transform us, but the entire world around us. And we are a part of that process. We must accept sorrow as a part of our salvation, not as an exception to it. Well, let's look at this point. Accept, expect sorrow and prepare for it. The psalm is about a person who's in agony. And he's crying out. Notice how many times he cries out. Verse 1, I cry out day and night to you. Verse 2, O Lord, God of my salvation, incline your ear to my cry. Verse 9, I cry out day and night. The psalmist is crying out. And why is he crying out? Because his soul is full of trouble. He's lost his strength. He's hurting. We see that there's pain going on here. Is it physical or is it emotional? The answer is yes. You know, we are human beings who are souls attached to bodies, aren't we? And what we feel inside manifests itself outside. And vice versa. You know, I think of our dear sister Dot, who's right in the midst of it. Her body's not working the way she is. And it affects all of us. And this man is feeling pain. But I think he's crying out for a deeper reason than simply because he's in pain. He's crying out because he's been cut off from God. Verse 4, I am counted among those who go down to the pit, like one set loose from among the dead. Verse 5, I am like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. He misses God. But he's crying not only that he's been cut off from God, that God is the one who has cut him off from himself. Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your ways. It's you who've done this, God. You've cut me off from you, but you've cut me off also from my companions. Verse 8, you have caused all my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. And then verse 18, you've cut me off, God, from my beloved. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and friend to shun me. Is that in his wife, his love, his husband? I don't know. I just know that this person feels completely alone and abandoned. The question we have to ask is, is it true? 
Is this man's perception reality? It could very well be true that his friends have abandoned him, that his beloved has abandoned him, that his health has left him. But is it true that God is the one whose wrath has come down upon this person to make these things occur in a spiteful way? See, what this man sees is his life, and he equates his loneliness and pain with abandonment by God. His perception is reality. But the truth of the matter is his perception is incorrect. Because he says, God, you have left me. You've left me alone. But what does the scriptures tell us? That God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Surely I will be with you always until the very end of the age. Jesus is saying, of course I'll never leave you. And he also says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God says to us in Isaiah 41, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. See, these are the promises for God's people. And as far as I can tell, this man who's calling out to God is one of God's people. And so he's saying, God, are you, are you, is your wrath upon me? Your wrath is upon me, but God's scriptures are saying no. What about God? You put me in the darkness where I'm alone. No one can see me. But does not God say in Psalm 139, 7 through David, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, are there. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to me. You, the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. See, God has promised us, and God performs and is faithful to His Word. The real issue of this man is his interpretation of reality. See, the truth of the matter for all of us is that suffering and sorrow is part of reality. Not beyond the will of God, but rather squarely in it. The reason suffering and sorrow is part of the reality of this world is because this world is broken. It's broken, and it will always be broken until God redeems it. Romans 8.20, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hopes that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right, birth right up to the present time. Creation is groaning because it's broken. The world is broken, and we are broken. These are Christians speaking in 2 Corinthians 5. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent of the body, we groan in our burden, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. See, we're broken, aren't we? The way we want to live, we don't live. The things we want to do, we don't do. The way we want to love, we don't love. Because we are not resurrected fully yet. The world is broken, we are broken, and guess what others are broken too. Think of the expectations that we put on other people that we never would put on ourselves. We're all messed up. There are two types of people in the world, friends. Those who are messed up and those who know they're messed up. And 
if this person understands, and if we understand that suffering and sorrow is part of reality, we can view life not simply that everything's fine and high in the sky, but the fact of the matter is this is just a part of life. John 16, 33 said this, I told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The problem was the psalmist was not prepared to expect sorrow, and so it catches him and wrecks his faith. I don't know if any of you had a chance to purchase a ticket on the Carnival Triumph over the last couple of weeks. Hopefully you did not manage to make the flight down to Galveston to take the Carnival Triumph. Some of you have heard this uh, cruise ship being castigated on public TV. For the Carnival Triumph went out in the Gulf of Mexico uh, for a lovely cruise down uh, through the waters there. There was a fire in the engine room disabling the, uh, the ship. And basically everything shut down. Power shut down to the air conditioning, to the elevators, to the toilets, to the kitchen equipment. The thing turned into a ghost ship. Nothing worked. Well, unfortunately, there are 4,000 people on this floating ghost ship. All who need to eat, all who need to go about their daily business. The problem was there was nowhere to go about their daily business. And uh, uh, this wonderful cruise turned into a horror story of just utterly horrible conditions. How it took, uh, you know, the tugboats, you know, they finally got this thing in after a week. Uh, and it was just the sort of cruise that I'm glad that I didn't end up on. You know, we want life to be like a carnival cruise, don't we? Particularly as Christians. You know, the difficult thing about being a Christian is we know how this thing all ends up. We also know about our Savior who made it in such a way that everything's going to end up. And so we embark on the cruise. We get on the ship and lo and behold, everything's going great. And then all of a sudden, the kitchen shuts down. <laughs> the laboratories aren't working. The beautiful people seem a little bit grumpy. And if we're not careful in understanding our reality, we're going to look around and say, you know what, I didn't sign up for this. I thought I was signing up for something else. But no, no, what we're hearing here in the psalm, what we're teaching and learning is, don't be surprised by sorrow. Expect it. We must go through any hardships to get to the kingdom of God. We're not quite there yet. So what do we do when it comes? We don't invite it. Do we? But we accept it. We accept that this world is broken and that it'll never give us exactly what we want. We accept the fact that we will be betrayed and we will betray. And we seek forgiveness from God and others and we look to be reconciled with other people. We accept the fact that we are getting older and our bodies will not function as well as they will when we are a child. We accept the fact that sickness and death is part of life. And so we hold on to the world, but not too tightly. 1 Peter 1.3 says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So I don't know where you're at right now in your life. Maybe you're in a time of summer, and the cruise is going wonderful, and there's a breeze going through the air. But when it's summer, prepare for winter. Because sooner or later, Winter's coming along. But you know, you may be right in the middle of winter right now. And it's cold and nothing's working. And you accept it. But when it's winter, you prepare for summer. Because summer's coming along. 
We keep our eyes on the prize because we are to expect sorrow in this world. Sorrow is not outside the realm of salvation. It's part of the process of God renewing the world. This brings me to my second point. We must not only accept uh, the sorrow and suffering, we must also accept it. See, I want to suggest to you that sorrow is more than simply, well, the world screwed up. What are you going to do with it? Sorrow is a process that God is using to perfect us. Suffering and sorrow is the hammer and the chisel that God is using to transform us from brokenness to beauty. The only one we need to look at to understand this is the one who came before us, Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus who came, who they described as a person who was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. And the way Jesus brought triumph to this world was through suffering. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, from whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's not Jesus' words that transformed the world. It was Jesus' pain and Jesus' sorrow and Jesus' death. Transformation always hurts, doesn't it? Anybody seen The Biggest Loser lately? Transformation hurts. You ever seen a snake shedding its skin? Or a bird coming out of its egg? It's a painful process. Jesus birthed a new people on the cross. And as we are being born, we will suffer as well. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. There is a transformation going on, and it's a current process. Because Christ, who sat at the right hand of the Father, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. If you want to put a sign around your neck, it would say, Under Renovation. You are a work in progress. If you are a Christian, you've already been saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. It's a process from beginning to end. And so we know as a Christian that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. But this is a process. 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our own body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. See, truth of the matter is, if you're a Christian, you're dying. If you're a Christian, you're living. God is doing a transformative process. Now, why is it so painful, though? I mean, could I get like the, you know, when you get the fast pass, the King's Dominion, you know, and you kind of go to the head of the line and you pay an extra and you go through? I thought a lot about this, you know, why is this transformation process? Sometimes being a Christian, I'm like, man, if I do all about what it's going to be, be a Christian, would I? Because there's a lot of pain. And I think this is what it is at the end of the day. There's too much stuff in us. 
There's not enough emptiness. Not enough room for God in us. And God isn't interested in being one of the idols on our shelves. God wants it all. And so things have to go. Anybody ever taken some time for spring cleaning, you know? Time to go clean up the room. We do this sometimes with our kids. It's very interesting. They, they're toys that they haven't seen for months that they thought had been long thrown away. I pull out, hey, we really don't need this. Can we? No, 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 no. Oh, I gotta get that. I gotta get that. You know? It's gotten to the point where we just, you know, when they're away, we just take them and start throwing them away. I'm sorry. It's true. We do it. Okay? They're coming over. So they just start throwing, you know? You know, it's hard enough when it's stuff that we don't like getting thrown out, right? To make space. What about stuff that we love? Okay? What about if you have, have been smoking since you were nine years old? I don't want to do it, but it's just part of me. There's stuff like that in our hearts that's just part of us. That God says, I'm not going to share time with that. The old Indians, when they would build a canoe, they would take a big, big uh, trunk of wood. And what they'd do is they'd have to hollow it out. But the only way they could hollow it out was to start burning it from the inside out. And they would burn the side, they would burn the cavity in there until it was empty and they could go ahead and get in and they would travel uh, them to where they needed to go. See, there's too much stuff within us. We want to keep our junk. But God says, you can't truly understand who I am and what I can be to you until you get rid of all this other stuff. And it's not optional. Jesus says, in the same way any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. See, that's what's happening to this guy right now. Things are being taken out of his life. My strength is gone. My joy is gone. My life is gone. My companions are gone. My beloved is gone. I want you and everything else. And God says, no, no, no. what you really want is me. And you can only enjoy these other things in your life that aren't necessarily bad things when they're enjoyed in me. So first, I've got to empty you. I love what this guy does. He's, he tries to make a bargain with God. Look at verses 10 through 12. I've pulled this trick before with God. It doesn't work very well. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Saying to God, do the, those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in the battle? Are your wonders known in the place of the darkness or your righteous deeds in the hand, land of oblivion? We say, Lord, if you keep doing this to me and I go down and I die, how will I be able to praise you? How do people from the dead praise you? And Jesus said, that's exactly the kind of praise that I'm looking for. Because the truth of the matter is, he's wrong. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Yes. Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? The answer is yes. See, the story of our life, we're simply following in the path of this one Jesus Christ, who, through the joy set before him, put down his life. Why? Because he knew that the praise to God would be loudest in the grave, and the loudest on the cross, and the suffering would bring the sweetest joy to God as he was a sacrifice. Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? They sure are. But it's not until you go into the darkness and are down there, that you can discover that God has been down there all of this time and is so much brighter than ever I thought He could be. You just couldn't see Him through all of your junk. 
There's no way to know God like this cognitively. There's no way to know God like this theoretically. The only way to know this is experientially. To go through it. Nobody says, you know what, I just went through a great easy time with God. I feel like I know him a lot better. It doesn't work that way, does it? Except opposite. God is burning away within us to bring us forth as gold. I remember my son playing football, and uh, you know, you always worry about your kids getting hurt. Well, this son, he broke his collarbone. Okay, breaking your collarbone is a very, very painful injury. Okay, because it's right here, and anytime you move barely, it's just out. You know, and here I am, there on the football field, gotta get my son to the hospital, and every time I'm carrying him, every time I'm moving, he's just screaming in pain. But I know I've got to get him to the hospital because he's broken. And I, even though he doesn't have it, I have a vision of the man he's going to grow up to be, which is a lot bigger than the boy he is right there. And so I've got to get him to the hospital in the right hands to go through a very painful process that he may be renewed from the inside out that he may grow up to be the person that he's going to be. See, God doesn't love giving us sorrow and suffering. He hurts just like a father for his children. But he does it because he sees the picture of what we're going to be. And God allows that which he hates in order to accomplish that which he loves. And so when you come up against sorrow, look into it more than just, oh, this is part of life, and it is. But understand that it's not useless. Not one tear that you've cried is not being recorded. The question to ask is, God, what are you changing in me? Why are you pushing on this particular collarbone? This particular area? What am I holding on to? Why are you making me suffer that I might feel? And let go of it. I think it was Corey Tim Boone. I, I've stopped holding on to things so tight because it hurts so much when God opens the prize over my fingers to get it. Relinquish. Cry out to God. Is there anything wrong with crying out to God? Not according to this God. And I don't see it either. Reach for God. Praise Him in the grave. Because that is when the praise is sweetest. And that's my final point, isn't it? If we accept that sorrow is a part of things, if we accept that God is using this, we embrace it. Because we know that beauty is cast forward when it's received in pain. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? I wear this around here. This is, this is a cross. Very strange design for a religion, isn't it? My Savior, up on a cross, used to kill criminals. There's a lot of different symbols and signs that I could use, couldn't I, to describe the beauty and glory of Christianity, right? The throne, but walking on the water, raising the dead, the angels around, you name it. But if you go all around the world, this is the one that you'll see. Why? Because we see the praise of God through Jesus, the Son of God, offering forth praise by raising out His hands and dying. The truth of the matter, my friends, is every single one of us will have one of these for your own life to show to everyone else. See, we embrace the mission of Christ. I don't know what your cross is going to be. 
You may have a couple of them. I don't know. And what is it right now? But that is a gift that God has given, not only to transform you into His likeness, but to show the world His grace and His beauty and His glory. And that it doesn't matter what's going on. That God has the power to speak in that particular area and bring light into the darkness. And so we realize that part of being a Christian in this world is to die as well. Whatever cross it is. I don't think there was ever a more beautiful time probably in Christ's life than when he at the very end of his life said it was finished. No one would ask him. God resurrected him. Just like he'll resurrect you and me. We must expect sorrow. Just part of his life. We must accept sorrow. It's part of what God's doing in our own life. Renovating us. And then finally we must embrace sorrow. For as it was God's gift to us, it's our gift to the world. Sorrow is a part of salvation. Not an expectation. And not an exception to it. Get used to it. Love it. Hate it. Walk through it. But look to God through it. Because it's in sorrow and suffering that you will see Him and joy more than you could have seen in any other place. Let's pray. Lord, sorrow is a lot of the broken and sinful people. But Lord, I thank you that for us who have believed in your name, it's not senseless, it's not wrath, it's the deepest care and love. I thank you that you are a God who has gone before us in Jesus Christ. That your symbol to us of your love is you on a cross. Lord, help us to die a little bit more to these idols that clutter up our hearts. Lord, that your suffering would burn deeper into our hearts and replace you with those things. Give us the courage to die in public, Lord. To worship you, whatever malady comes that people might see our love for you, that as we are put into our place uh, of suffering and shame, Lord, that they would see the beauty of you through us, and they would love you too. We pray all of this in Christ's name.